Uh, welcome everybody to this week's um, Rethink Energy podcast um, around the uh, final issue of uh, Rethink Energy 2021. In it, we're going to talk about the EV plan that the uh, uh, American um, president has uh, finally uh, explained um, through his Department of Energy and Department of Transport. We're also going to look at a, a little peek into the Australian um, market where the Australian energy operator has got a, a, their own integrated systems plan for uh, the future. And Andres is going to look in depth at that and we're going to discuss that. We also have um, something on uh, putting sales back into the uh, transport market where uh, Harry has um, looked at the potential for reducing emissions on uh, large-scale shipping across the world over the next 10 to 20 years. The first story um, is uh, my disappointment. I wrote this on uh, the Biden-Harris plan for EVs. Just starting to realise that America, although it's shocked that it's accelerating the number of electric vehicles it's buying up to 5.6% of all cars uh, in the last monthly figures, it's way behind any other part of the world and the reason for that is it doesn't really subsidize electric vehicles across the board it's it's got very limited subsidies up to just the first 200,000 of each manufacturer Uh, so tesla no longer gets subsidies and this is about the replacement for that system and unfortunately what's happened here is uh, that from the potential of getting um dollars of subsidy on an electric vehicle that only applies if the vehicle was made in entirely in America and with union labor. So this is more a statement about unions and um, and pro-America than it is about electric vehicles. And as a result of that, the, um, the bills deeply flawed will slow the development of EVs in America, uh, leaving them out on the long. And Tesla doesn't have unions. So there's, Tesla doesn't have unions, and neither do any of the Europeans where they're operating in America, Volkswagen, BMW, and and, and some of the uh, other Asian companies. So what we've got here is this is um, this is General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, and perhaps it applies to some of the other smaller EV startups. Perhaps it applies, applies to Rivian. Perhaps perhaps not, depending on where their components come from. Uh, but certainly what they went unionized, which means it's half, you know, the, you, you've taken the innovators in the market and you've said, have this slap in the face. You can you can have half the money. And my old traditional um, uh, car companies who resisted this revolution, kicking and screaming, saying, no, 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 I'm going to give them most of the money. Obviously, the money they're going to put into 500,000 recharge points is also in danger of being um, wasted. For anyone who's had a long-standing view of tech, tech in America, broadband, mobile, even telephony in the first instance, cable, in each rollout, the poor and the, the smaller districts and the rural uh, elements of America got left behind. Some cases got just, it, it never, they never caught up. And here we are with the administration saying it's, it's got to be initially, we've got to consider uh, putting the charge points where poor people live. And of course, if you put them where poor people live and they can't afford the cars and you're not subsidizing them fully because they're not made in America, you end up with people 
from the middle class neighbourhoods driving to the poor neighbourhoods to recharge their cars. This makes no sense. How do you think the innovators like Tesla or Rivian or um, uh, Neo and so on, how are they going to be reacting to this? Do, do, well, we, we already know. We already know. Okay. Elon Musk has been tweeting about this. He's saying, don't pass the legislation. It's pointless. OK, OK. Uh, and, you know, the, the, is, the you, love or hate Elon Musk, you just have to look at their share price. Yeah. And he says, investors in America want this. They want this badly and they believe. You can't, you're slapping those investors in the face if you're, if you're ignoring the company that's leading the charge. It's just, uh, uh, I kind of agree with him. It doesn't matter if this passes. It's going to happen in America anyway. This is not going to accelerate it. This is going to allow America to not be left too far behind. But it's going to become, it's going to lose the war for making cars as a result of this type of legislation. It's, it's, um, you've got too many influences into a single piece of legislation. I mean, if you if you look at um, I mean, after reading this article, I did a little bit of reading about um, how unions affect innovation within within these markets, and and I think yeah, something like if you pass a sort of union, sort of a deal that really promotes unions within um, these industries, there's a massive drop in the amount of patents that are actually filed sort of following that. Um, so obviously, it is a massive indication that sort of innovation is going down. Do you think that that companies like Tesla will just sort of it will shift their their manufacturing outside of the US as well. So do you think it will actually, could, is there a possibility that it could actually decrease the number of jobs created in the uh, the American EV market? I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah, I think they, they, they've got, um, obviously got the big plant and they've got another one being built and there's a third on the cards, but they, they've got one in Germany coming along now. They're talking to other countries that, that clearly the Chinese one got up and running in record time. Uh, at the moment, European, Europe is being uh, supplied by Tesla's made in China. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, if you're saying you don't get a subsidy, you only get half the subsidy uh, because you're non-unionized and, and also if your battery is not made in the US, so I think for Tesla it is made in the US, you, you, you're going to end up, uh, well, at the moment, they, 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 Tesla is in this position where it sells cars all over the world. Nobody, no other EV manufacturer who's gone from a startup sells cars all over the world. GM, Ford, a few others have, have started to sell them all over the world. So they have a good representation in Europe from uh, history. Uh, but the, the European leaders in each country, you know, in, in Italy, the Fiat 500e came out a year ago. It's already the, the leading electric vehicle in Italy. So, so their local brands tend to dominate anyway. But you'll find Tesla second or third in every one of those markets. But also Tesla's bought in the United Arab Emirates. It's bought in Saudi. It's bought in Asia. So Tesla doesn't really have a... It's not setting it a problem if America's development in EVs goes haywire. Tesla will be fine. I'm not sure that anybody else will. You, you can't buy a Tesla in the state of Louisiana, I've been told. There yeah, you can buy it outside the state of yeah. Louisiana, have it delivered to the uh, county lines and then drive it drive it from there. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's how, there's a number of states like that. I mean, there's um, Massachusetts says it's got to go through a dealer. So they just, they just buy it out of state and drive it in. Yeah. The, 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 this is just um, people being Luddites. Yeah. That's not really uh, a resistance. You know, the dealers, dealers have to get used to it. If you don't add value, um, why would anyone go through a dealer? And if you're not adding value to an electric vehicle company, no one's going to sell through you. 
And, and if you've used to add value, but now you just kind of say, oh, uh, you have to come through me, therefore I get this business for old road. Why would anyone give you a margin? Uh, the, the current is just changing. People just have to get used to it. I mean, we, we keep pointing this out, that it's changing faster than anyone realises. We did a uh, webinar with um, Bath University last week. We, we made it very clear. We know when the oil industry is going to falter. We know when it's going to uh, have its first bankruptcies. We know how that is going to happen. We've done the numbers on the forecast. And nobody, everyone's still just blindly heading towards the cliff with blindfolds on and just thinking, no, no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Well, come 2031, 2032, there will be no oil, oil industry. If cars haven't transitioned by then, they're screwed. So if you've got a country like America that's only got 50% of its cars are EVs by that time, and all the manufacturers are doing fine, but the oil companies go bust, yeah. well, good luck. That's going to be a mess. Um, I think think people are unaware of how quickly this opportunity is leaving. But let's move on. We go on about that. Andres, in Australia, uh, the Australian energy market operators published a new uh, ISP. Yeah, uh, it does this every couple of years. And there's, there's plenty to talk about in general. But the two biggest things that caught my eye were... It sees in a hydrogen superpower scenario, which it still doesn't see as the most likely outcome, but I do. I think we all do. It sees Australia having nine, eight, 850 gigawatts of total capacity in 2050 uh, for a state that will only have like 36 million citizens because you know it will have hundreds and hundreds just dedicated to hydrogen alone. The other interesting thing about this was the curtailment. It, it, because Because of the big distances in Australia, they see it as the most cost-effective option is uh, to just have 20% curtailment by 2050. Uh, from about 2025, they'll just allow the um, and AMO is the is the uh, grid operator, the market operator. So it, it plans to have 1% increase in almost 1% increase in curtailment every year now, uh, from 2024 at least. And uh, so it's up to that these is, solar many solar uh, installations to find another buyer for that curtailed energy hmm. rather than switch off your your um, solar panels you, you you just need to say um they're going to turn away some of my energy and that's because of overbuilding you, you're, you're saying that they, they, they deliberately want people to build more than they need so they have spare capacity yeah, because Australia is far enough from the equator that there's quite a lot of seasonal variation um, between the winter and the summer of how much solar you, you get. So basically, they want to build solar enough to have a 100% renewable grid, not just from solar, also from wind, quite a lot of wind uh, in the winter. So that means in the summer, you'll have an excess and that's what's going to get curtailed. So if it's 20% overall, I suppose it's it might be something like 0% in winter, uh, 40% in summer, quite dramatic. But so what you're saying thing, here is that everything above 300 gigawatts, uh, up to 800, is going to be used for making hydrogen. More, more. So there's going to be more energy in Australia going into hydrogen than there is to the entire economy. Well, yeah, if you look at, on page 21 of our issue, uh, I'm not sure where it is within AMO's uh, big ISP. It's, yeah, it is the majority. If, if you compare the step change scenario to the hydrogen superpower scenario, 
you know, it's it's 300 gigawatts of capacity in step change and 800 in hydrogen superpower. So that's 500 gigawatts just for uh, hydrogen by 2050. Curtailment often is a bit of a dirty word, I think. Um, people often think, oh, it's just renewables going to waste. Um, obviously, there's a massive drive in many markets, especially China, especially reduce curtailment because hmm. but that's more because in those markets, curtailment is an issue because of transmission. Um, Currently, it's the same issue in Australia. I mean, and it's increasingly so. So obviously, we saw this year South Australia reach 100% solar at one point. So obviously, there's once you're reaching 100% renewables, there's always going to be 101% where that 1% is going to waste if you can't export that energy. And in Australia, where there's sort of interconnections between states, given the fact it's a massive country as well, are pretty poor, exporting that's not always not always that easy. So when you when you think about it. It's not going to make sense for Australia to to build this grid and transport its renewable energy all across the country, especially when the build out of renewables is happening so rapidly that each section of the country is probably going to be 100 percent renewable soon anyway. It, all this is going to be is is the production of green hydrogen. And Australia is a great market for it to first be built because obviously we've reached 100 percent renewable. The 100 percent renewables marks are being reached more and more regularly. So. The amount. This is why we're seeing in Australia these massive giga projects for hydrogen. Right. I mean, we saw we saw more this week. I think there was one by Aquarium that was announced around 10 gigawatts this week uh, in the Northern Territory. This curtailment, yes, it's going to be a thing for four years, uh, maybe three. But once you get these large hydrogen complexes being built and you've got this excess of renewable energy um, flowing into these green hydrogen um, electrolyzers, then yeah, it's just going to be hydrogen production, and that hydrogen production will be used for firstly for industry in Australia, which will be co-located with the actual hydrogen production itself. But very, very quickly after it, afterwards, it will be export South Korea, Japan, Indonesia, um, and I think that's Australia's biggest opportunity. I think the interesting thing is seeing how that directly conflicts with their Prime Minister Scott Morrison being very famously pro-coal and pro-coal exports, but give that a few years and that that just won't be the rhetoric in Australia anymore, especially when you see the opportunities coming out of this green hydrogen market. And I think it comes down to the relative costs of um, long duration seasonal energy storage and hydrogen electrolyzers compared to solar. Well, solar is cheaper and it's going to get cheaper still, uh, even comparatively as time goes on. So it will just keep on being the sensible choice to overbuild the solar instead of trying to fully integrate it. It just isn't the limiting factor. You always want to run an electrolyzer, even if that means you have to overbuild the solar, for example. Yeah, I think, I think, I think this idea of overbuilding solar is a, is a great idea. I mean, it's been mentioned in a lot. I mean, it's mentioned in the States. It's been mentioned in lots of places. It, it, there's no reason why you can't make an investment case to build another solar farm, even if the electricity, not all of it, can be sold to the grid. You, you can you know, immediately that hydrogen comes along and as soon as batteries come along, you can store it temporarily and then sell it at a higher price at a different time of the day. Um, and, and you can do it in dynamically across the whole economy. And, and, to, and the final thing is I can always make hydrogen out of it. Yeah, I think what Australia needs to do is it needs to have enough solar power, solar and battery power that it can it can provide its, its own um, renewables uh, its own grid with renewables twenty four seven during the win- during its winter, uh, and that and that's the level it needs to reach. So that when during the summer, that's excess that it's creating, and it will be it will be huge excess that will be firstly exported through these sort of large transmission projects to to Southeast Asia, but then yeah, green hydrogen and then exporting into sort of global markets. So it's a it's a real opportunity for Australia. It's, I mean, it's a real opportunity for any 
any country where you've got a large amount of arid land. Uh, oh, so let's start naming those countries because I think this Australia could become a model for this is how you do it. Uh, and while we don't really think that hydrogen is it's going to lose quite a lot of its value by sticking it on a ship, freezing it and then sailing it to another country. So we don't see this being as big as, the, say, the LNG spot market, the hydrogen market, the, the hydrogen transport market. Um, it must be true that someone like Chile can do the same. Yeah, so that's exactly what I was about to say. About, so Chile is a prime market for this. Um, I think Australia obviously is benefiting from the fact that it's a fairly prosperous country. So it's actually been able to invest in the infrastructure around this now. It's got quite a good... Uh, sort of low risk investment uh, environment, which is why we're seeing these massive projects pop up. It's why we're seeing them pop up in places like Oman as well, obviously slightly more risky there and, not, and largely in Chile. But th- so these markets, it's going to sort of trickle down from the the wealthiest market with the low risk and then it's going to be trickle down to yet yeah, Chile, Oman, and then it's going to start moving to places like Kazakhstan, North Africa, actually Saudi Arabia as well. And these markets where you've got a not massive populations due to the fact that most of the country is actually fairly unlivable, um, but this huge, this huge solar potential, which you can really exploit uh, and you don't need 24-7 power. You can literally just create hydrogen and then not do it during the night because there's no risk of oh, what happens if we're not generating electricity overnight. It's not necessarily an issue. Um, I think Western China is going to be a really interesting place to look out for because obviously Chinese investment is, is massive in these sort of projects and it's it's all going quite quiet about what's going on in Western China. But I imagine in the next sort of few years, we'll suddenly hear, oh, China's installed a five gigawatt electrolyzer project in the West producing X amount of green hydrogen. Uh, and I think that's something that Australia should really keep an eye on because I think that's China will be also looking to to uh, exporting into Japan and to Indonesia, which is what, what Australia will be doing as well. Interestingly, so Russia stops, um, instead of trying to invade the Ukraine to cut off its worry that it's going to cut off its oil supply pipeline there, it invades Kazakhstan, which is um, uh, straight below it, uh, because of all the energy that it's selling to the West. Yeah, is that, I think that is a dynamic that could be quite interesting to watch, actually, because I think the the solar potential in Kazakhstan actually is, is going to be a lot greater than in Russia. So. Um, unless Russia can really crack on with its wind uh, power development, which it definitely should, I think there could be quite a lot of diversion of ex- imports into Europe from Russia in- to Kazakhstan, because it's very, it's very light for like swap, I think. when you're well, actually More likely, Kazakhstan could um, turn any excess into China. China would always be happy for but, you know, to have solar in Kazakhstan feeding the Chinese cities in the, not the west, but the east. Yeah, I mean, I mean, China, I think it will also look to Mongolia for that. Uh, Mongolia, a country with very few people and a huge amount of, uh, amount of solar potential. So, so, um, so far, there's nothing really going on in Mongolia for renewables, if I'm not mistaken. But you think mistaken. it'll the, get them? There's, oh, there's a lot of projects being developed by by China. Obviously, Inner Mongolia has been a big focus for China in terms of these mega projects. And I think we'll see an increasing amount of proposals for China to develop projects in Mongolia um, using Chinese finance. Um, yeah, but they've done that. There's, there's a three gigawatt solar development that's almost coming to the, it's almost finished. It was signed up about two years ago. It was all in Mongolia, not in Mongolia, in Mongolia itself. And all, and yeah, they're going to keep some of the electricity, most of it's going to China. Oh, wow. I'll have to look that up. I mean, if you, if so, you told I've, me about it, Andrews. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> It happens like that sometimes you forget your own stories. Okay, 
so the other piece we were going to talk about, we're talking about um, sales returning to the shipping market. Uh, Harry, uh, interesting piece on. Uh, I was, I, I really thought I knew what the piece was going to say, and I thought these little stand-up sales, which which add a little impetus to the ship, which I'd seen in rival publications in the last few weeks, and then suddenly I see this huge, um, huge kite or parafoil, as you called it. The purpose was very much the same. Um, so the purpose is that you, you're going to have a sail on a ship basically to do to take a little bit off the heavy lifting um, of the engine. Doesn't really matter if that's a, a diesel, en- a, a bunker fuel engine, or a hydrogen engine, uh, a, an ammonia fuel cell at the moment. Um, but I think the the overall th- thinking is that it could be a bit, sort of between ten and forty percent reduction in the energy ships actually have to use to, to make their to make their journeys essentially. So what we've seen this week is a company called Air Seas, which is pretty much a spin-off from Airbus. It's not technically a subsidiary, but it's it's basically a bunch of Airbus employees and it's already signed several deals with Airbus. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Airbus acquire it at some point in the in the future, um, once it's once it's got a few more deals under its wing. But what they've developed is yeah, a parafoil that is attached to the front of a ship. Uh, it's deployed when in, when this, when the wind t- uh, conditions are right, and it it will find a figure of eight motion, which then can yeah provide about a hundred tons of, of traction to a ship, taking quite a lot a lot of the burden off off of the engine, and obviously save yeah savings of the C- the CO two emissions uh, associated with that, and saving the the cost of the fuel that is also is also uh, saving. So it's in principle quite a good idea especially if the uh, the cars can be produced at fairly low cost i think the the benefit that airbus really have here is their uh, experience within the aviation market and using sort of digital twinning uh, to really increase the efficiencies and sort of the system-wide efficiencies of it um, and actually making something that's going to be pr- pretty resilient to to what is quite harsh environments i mean these these kites are flying at s- several hundred feet above above the sea um, in winds that can obviously be very erratic so having something that's that's well controlled and uh, has very little safety risks uh, is going to be extremely important. Now, yes, if you stick with biofuels, this will lower the emissions but not get rid of them. But of course, if you shift to anything that's battery, it extends the range of the battery so you can go over longer distances. Or, and certainly uh, for hydrogen, it cuts down the cost of the hydrogen. So it's, it's technology to, here to stay. It's going to work across all of those fuels. Why has no one thought about this before? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, people have thought about this before. Obviously, people have put, shit, put sales on ships. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think in an industry where there's very little pressure to decarbonize and very little financial incentive to okay. decarbonize, yes. then it's a lot simpler to have one fuel source that's that's being managed and you don't have to worry about, oh, what happens if this one fails or this one fails? But I think now that there's actually a financial incentive to reduce the cost, to reduce the carbon emissions from your ship, and while I suppose solutions are currently lacking for the immediate decarbonisation of the maritime industry, I think having a solution that can cut your costs by 20% in terms of your carbon tax, in terms of your fuel costs, is actually quite a sustainable thing to do, especially when you know it's it's going to again cut the the fuel costs of things like green ammonia when that comes into the market and is initially at a slightly higher price. So I think it is a fairly um, future-proof investment for people in the shipping industry. Um, and I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So the news this week was that they, they've got a, um, a ship with this now installed in France that will travel between France and the USA. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops, whether or not there are any technical issues. Um, I'm sure they could be resolved. 
but I think their plans to scale could see this actually deployed um, with an, a, a decent amount of ships. I think they're aiming for around 10% of the global shipping fleet by 2030, which is obviously ambitious, but there's no reason to say why why this wouldn't be used. I think if it's, I mean, kites are I'm sure it's technology that's been developed for years, so it's not going to be something that's hugely expensive, despite the fact that they've not actually said how expensive the kite systems are yet. So it also has a, an element of PR to it for the, the shipping owners. I think if you can show that you're deploying a ship, it's it's, it's not greenwashing because I think it is effective, but it is a fairly a, a fairly good idea. Um, and I think people will associate it with an effort to reduce emissions as well. I mean, they use this figure of eight thing. I mean, they've used it in um, startups um, just as a wind turbine. They've used the idea of, of having a uh, a self sort of kind of launching kite into the air. But Minesto, the other week, signed a deal with Schneider Electric. Minesto used it underwater. It's exactly the same thing. They have a, a tethered underwater kite system doing a figure of eight. And, and, and it, it picks up from the waves and it uses it's, it's a way of, of getting maximizing wave power. So it's an absolutely it's an established idea. It's all down to levelized cost of energy in, in, in most instances, if you're going to use it to generate electricity here, you're going to use it to offset fuel. Yeah, uh, the figure of eight, as sort of in terms of physics principles, um, I think creates something, something around ten times more traction than if just if you just had a, a straight sail or a straight kite, um, just due to the fact that the, there's the momentum of the of the set, of the powerful actually moving around. So um, that's why it's been adopted by people trying to develop kite power systems, and I think that's why it's obviously been de- uh, operated uh, developed here. It'll be interesting to see whether or not there's any battles between this and the tidal based solutions um, or the wave based solutions. I think it's obviously potentially it's potentially easier to to monitor what's going to happen with with the wind. Well, it's a lot easier, but although it's a lot easier to do, know what's going on with the tide um, than waves. So, um, I mean, uh, there are uh, you know, Minister in particular, is its levelised cost is incredibly low compared to all the other wave systems. It's it's a real piece of promise in a mostly a barren land. Uh, there's lots and lots of wave systems, none of them. I can create electricity that can um, compete on price. Maybe, maybe this one in the offing. 